All right. Um, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Jeremiah 32. You certainly, uh, on, in the packet that's in front of you, you have the worksheet, which is pages 1 and 2, and then pages 3 and following um, are all the verses that I plan to go through tonight. Maybe there's some others that I might think about along the way. Um, and then on page 8 is a, kind of a graph that we've been working on, or a chart that we've been working on, which is basically laying the prophets as best we can in their time and situation in relation to the kings of the north and the south. And then finally, the last page, page 9, is a bibliography of various consulted resources in preparing tonight's worksheet. So uh, you can look through that at your leisure, but we're going to go through most of that tonight. Um, basically what we've been doing since it's been a few weeks, since we've been together for Wednesday night, we've had member meetings and we've had uh, uh, obviously the two weeks at Christmas that we weren't meeting. So it's uh, worth remembering kind of what we do and what we're trying to do, what our goal is that we're accomplishing here tonight. So We've been going through all, uh, let's go way back. We started off going in, in, in Genesis, really going through, the, the desire was really to go through the story that the Old Testament is laying out. And, and ultimately, that's going to lead us to the story the whole Bible is putting out. And so we're going to be doing that over the course of, uh, it's going to take us a long time, I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, and, uh, and we have gotten to the end of, Second Kings, which basically means that the children of Israel have been exiled. They've been sent off. The northern kingdom, uh, which is made up of the northern ten tribes, has been hauled off into Assyria in 722 B.C. Um, the southern kingdom has been hauled off into captivity in Babylon in uh, three successive military campaigns that Babylon sent in there, and eventually in 586, they get pulled out to Babylon. So that's where 2 Kings ends up, ends up, is with them moving out into Babylon. So for our part, now we're going into the prophets, and we're kind of trying to accomplish two goals at the same time. One is to take the prophets and put them in their place in history, like show where they fall, okay? And the second part of that, if that's 1A, then 1B would be kind of go through the book to kind of demonstrate that's where they are in their setting. But then the other big part of that, which is tremendously important, is not only trying to understand all of that, where they are in context, but then actually trying to understand the prophet itself. One of the hardest things that I find in my own study of the Bible and have throughout my life that I think is common amongst most people in the church is when you get to the prophets, you start reading them and you hear war, famine, pestilence, plague. You hear uh, a lot of these names of cities you've never heard of before and people you've never heard of before. And then they say it sometimes, like in verses, they're like, like you're supposed to know what that means. You know, they, they state it, and they just move on like there's some big, I know there was some big earth-shattering moment that I was supposed to understand right there, but it's totally lost on me. And so what we've done in the prophets is really to slow down 
and to actually put the words of the prophet up on the screen, and you've got it there in your, in your pack or your Bible that's in, on your lap, and actually look at the words, knowing the context that the prophet falls in and, and, and kind of what their aim is, then when you look at the words that are on the page, they start to make a little bit more sense, all right? But then we can't just leave it there. Because if we just say, okay, here's what the prophet means in his context, that's great for the prophet and for the people that he's talking to, but what about me on my couch on Monday morning as I'm reading through my Bible reading plan? How does this apply to me? What does this actually mean to me? I think when we see the end of the prophet's message that we actually as Christians can then apply it to us in a 2023, January of 2023, and, and we can say, that's really meaningful for me, right? That's, our, that's really our goal, and so we want to do that. And so we're in the middle of Jeremiah. And I'll kind of rem- remind you of some, a couple of things really briefly. Remember, Jeremiah was a priest and a prophet to Judah in the 13th year of Josiah, which is 627. The kings are in the back of your packet, so you can consult that if if you want to. But his ministry really kind of began in the the 13th year of Josiah, which is 627. And it lasted all the way to the end of the southern kingdom in 586. And it could even be beyond. It certainly looks like it was beyond. He might have died and sort of left his his prophecy to kind of be put together by, by his scribes and things like that, maybe, but, uh, but it's at least to 586, so that's a good long ministry, and he's called to speak to the nation of Judah about their eventual uprooting. So he, here's the big problem, right? Uh, the northern kingdom has been hauled off about a hundred years prior. They, they, the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin watched as Assyria walked into the northern kingdom and took their brothers and just took them into captivity. Okay, so having watched that, they're now having the Babylonians breathe down their necks, threatening to haul them off into captivity. And all of the prophets that are gathered around the king are telling the king exactly what he wants to hear, which is, you're not going to be hauled off into captivity. Don't worry about it. God's going to protect you. This is his land. That's his temple right there next door. I mean, he, what, what is he going to do? Haul you off into captivity? Come on. Jeremiah is the lone voice in the crowd saying, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to take you off into captivity. And so, as a result of that, the king is sort of giving the stiff arm to Jeremiah and saying, just sit down and be quiet. I don't want to hear from you. Okay, and you're going to see some of that tonight. Um, but he's called to speak about the fact that they're going to be removed and, and replanted. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight as well. So Jeremiah tells the people that are, in, uh, that are going to exile in Babylon that that is the will of the Lord. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. You are the people of God. You're located in the nation of God. You have the God's king on the throne. He's from the line of David. Right there in your, at the highest point in your land, you see this temple that's there that Solomon built. 
that is the place where you meet with God or where God meets with His people. You have been called the people of God. He led your forefathers out of Egypt and brought you into this land and just gave it to you. There's no way He's going to uproot us. Now you've got this prophet coming along saying not only is He going to uproot you, but this is for your good. This is what you want. We want you to go into exile. You need to go into exile. That's a hard sell, all right? I'm just, just flatly speaking, that's a hard sell to tell someone this is going to be, this is going to end up being great for you, right? In the same way it would be if somebody told you, look, cancer is the way to go. You got a choice here. You can either have cancer or not have cancer, and I'm telling you, cancer is the way to go. How many of you are signing up for that? No one, right? Probably, unless they're maybe really convincing. All right, and Jeremiah is not. Um, all right, so he, um, Jeremiah doesn't, where we last left off, last time we were together, he, he doesn't leave the prophecy in vague generalities, but he tells them exactly what the circumstances are going to look like, but then what God's rescue plan is actually going to look like. So we're right now in chapters you know, 29 all the way to like 33 of Jeremiah is Jeremiah talking about what the rescue plan for God is actually going to look like. Why going into captivity in Babylon is going to be good for you. So he's kind of laying that out for them and making that argument. You're familiar, we talked about last time with Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a, a future and hope. So we have that on our walls and things like that, and he's talking specifically to people that are apprehensive about going into exile, and he's trying to sell them on being willing to just lay down their weapons and go into exile in Babylon, that it's ultimately going to be for your good because God knows the plans that he has for you, and his plans are not to harm you. It's to give you a future and a hope. And so the passage that we're in tonight is between chapters 32 and 33. And that falls in that, under that same kind of umbrella, but we're going to try to unpack a few more things tonight. So here's what I'm going I'm to just throw in my little brief warning, all right? So disclaimer. If you have not been in building blocks, in my building block, for the last four weeks or so, what we're going to do tonight on that board is probably going to be a little bit new to you, all right? Okay, one. The first time you hear it or go through it, it's going to maybe, for some of you, this, some of you, may, this may be an old hat, but for some of you, this may feel like you're in the back of a F-22 and you're pulling eight Gs, all right? And you're going up like this and, you know, you kind of start feeling the shaking and the blood starting to drain from your head and you're going to pass out, all right? I get that, okay? I understand. What's What's that? <laughs> yeah, she, Shannon said we're going to be here till midnight because uh, they're going to have questions. That, that, and that's fine, okay? So just understand that the first pass-through through this may feel like I'm overwhelmed with information. I'm not quite sure I understand this. That's fine, okay? The people that have been in building blocks can probably tell you by maybe the fourth time you kind of start to pick up on it a little bit more. Yeah, okay, all right, good. I'm seeing some of you with the, nodding their heads. So you can ask them, they'll tell you the answer. They'll explain it to you, all right? That's what that means, that you can meet them in the parking lot and they'll just lay it out there for you, all right? 
Um, okay, so the way we're going to start this is basically going through a uh, text of Scripture, all right? So we're going to start with Jeremiah 32, 1 to 5. And so knowing that the context is Jeremiah is really wanting to give hope to the people who are going into exile, all right? That's kind of the context that we're in. So here we get to chapter 32, the very beginning, and this is what it says. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this off my iPad, and I'm going to be able to underline things and things like that. So up here, I'll be able to maybe mark on this, if that's helpful at all. All right. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. And you're thinking, what does that all mean? Well, it means at the time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. What's going on right now in the land? Babylon has come in. They are in the middle of laying waste to Israel, to specifically to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under siege by an invading army. Keep that in your mind. That actually is not a throwaway detail, because most of you are going, 10th year of Zedekiah, blah, 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 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have those dates in your head. Who really cares about that? It's actually very important that you understand it's in the process of Babylon laying waste to Jerusalem. Okay, Jeremiah is, where is he? He's in prison, all right? He's in jail, and he's in jail in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy? Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape. This is all Zedekiah talking, okay? Zedekiah, king of Judah, he shall, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall uh, speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Why is Jeremiah locked in a prison cell? Because he's telling the truth. He's telling the king he's going to lose. And look, we don't need any of your negativity around here, right? You've heard this before. You know, speak no evil. Like, we don't want that to come about, all right? You're, you're being, uh, uh, you're jinxing us, all right? Jeremiah is jinx, they think, to the kingdom by telling them that they're going into captivity and Zedekiah does not like it, so he has shut him up in jail so that he will be quiet. Okay. So after the introduction of the New Covenant, which happens in chapter 31, that's the last thing we talked about in chapter 31. It happens there at the end where Jeremiah gets this New Covenant. The following two chapters, 32 and 33, are basically going to provide more illustration and more clarity to exactly what God means by giving them this New Covenant. Now, you may not remember this, and I'll go ahead and read it. I didn't plan on reading this, but I'll go ahead and read um, some of it that happens here at the end of, of chapter 31, which is just, if you've got your Bibles, it's just in the previous chapter there. 
Uh, verse 31 of chapter 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So he's detailing this new covenant that he's bringing to the people. And 32 and 33 is where he's going to double down on that covenant. He's going to give more clarity and more, uh, just more, more of an illustration to exactly how that covenant is going to flesh its way out. And so tonight, we're going to actually go through a couple of the covenants that are going to come into play in this new covenant that he's about to lay out. Now, remember the context of this revelation that Jeremiah is about to be given is when he's in jail, while the Babylonian army is outside his jail cell, hammering away at the city of Jerusalem, about to lay it to waste. Got it? Okay, that's the context. All right. Here we go, 32, 6 to 15. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle. So this is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah is going to speak of himself in the third person because he's speaking as if God were speaking directly to him. Okay? He says, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, Jeremiah, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. All right, stop right there. Let's say you're Jeremiah. You're in jail. Someone comes and visits you in jail. The prison guard comes by and says, you have a visitor. They haul you out of the jail cell, sit you down at one of those little tables, lock you down, right? Person comes in. And Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom, sits down, your cousin. And he says, Jeremiah, I want you to buy my field that is at Anathoth. All the while, you're listening outside and you're hearing clank, 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 clank. Stones being lobbed into Jerusalem. As, a, as, a, as the strongest military in the world lays waste to the capital city, and you've been telling everyone for 31 chapters that they are about to go into captivity and everybody's going to be hauled off into captivity. Is this the best time to buy real estate? <laughs> Your cousin sits down. Timothy, you said you got a relative problem. <laughs> Jeremiah has a relative problem. His cousin sits down. All right? And says, have I got a deal for you? I got this timeshare, see? <laughs> and the lot has fallen on you. you it's your lucky day, Jeremiah. You're going to get to buy this property. Now, the only reason you would buy that property is if the Lord came to you and said, your cousin's going to come offering you a deal that you're not going to want to take but you need to take it, all right? 
Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Now, you got to understand, most of these people are going to be hauled off into captivity, and it seems as though Hanamel is convinced he's going to be one of them, and he's also convinced, Jeremiah, you're probably staying behind. Because honestly, no one wants you around. <laughs> All right. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. It came true. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Mahaseah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Ah, this we get down is again one of those bottom heavy passages. You keep going through this and you're going, why on earth would the Lord tell Jeremiah to buy a field? Why is he giving him real estate advice right now? And so he does this, he arranges, you know, the, the person that witnesses your signature and then, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, and then it got everybody there and they, they take the deeds and all that kind of stuff. They wrap it up. He gives it to his secretary, Baruch, who's also his secretary for this letter. And he says, hey, put it somewhere, safekeeping, seal it up, keep it as long as we possibly can as a record. And what is the purpose of the record? Tell me, what is the purpose of the record? Yes, so houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. As we see and we have seen time and again, the prophets become an illustration. Their own lives, their money, their, all their worth, everything that they are becomes an illustration of God's purposes. You understand? Okay, there's, a, there's some application there, all right? The prophets become an illustration to the rest of the world of God's purposes. All He says, look at what he says. He says, uh, take the deeds, seal them for a long time, put them in everywhere, that they may last for a long time. And he goes back up here, uh, lost it, uh, all the Judeans right here in 13. All of the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard were there to watch this happen. This is a message to them that Jeremiah's prophecies are true. How much do you actually believe the word of the Lord, Jeremiah? You just spent this whole time telling us we've got to go into captivity. And you spent then the whole time telling us it's for your good. You spent the whole time telling us that's not the end, that it's going to be 70 years and you're going to come back here. Well, now you've got an opportunity to buy property in the land that's about to be desolate. 
All that you paid for it, it's about to be worthless. How much do you believe it? Put your money where your mouth is. All right. So in 587, the year before Jerusalem fell, that's the purpose of telling you that date in the year of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar is to help you understand this is a year before uh, Jerusalem fell. Hanamel, Jeremiah's cousin, came to his, pal- to, to his place of confinement and urged Jeremiah to buy for him the field of Anathoth. Hanamel obviously believed the, that whereas he would be exiled, Jeremiah would be left behind and hence in a position to care for the estate. All right. Jeremiah, in response to the direction of the Lord, complied with the order of Baruch to take the scroll on which the transaction was recorded and place it in a clay jar to preserve it until the exile was over and Jeremiah's heirs could reclaim their lands and properties. All right, 587 lands. Now, that doesn't mean that in this process Jeremiah doesn't have some questions. All right, he certainly has some questions. Lord, I do not understand what you're doing. In fact, Jeremiah is puzzled, and so the rest of chapter 32 is Jeremiah and the Lord going back and forth, and Jeremiah asking, please, Lord, help me understand why you've got me buying property in the midst of all of this while I'm in prison. And verses 26 to 44, so we're not going to read all of that. 17 to 25 is Jeremiah basically just saying, Lord, you got all the answers. You're the creator of heaven and earth. You can do anything you want. But please, tell me why this is happening. And in verses 26 to 44, which we are going to look at, uh, at least part of it, is Yahweh's response to Jeremiah in the midst of that. All right? So here we go. We're going to look at some of this here. Verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them. Who's them? Yes, ones that were taken captive, taken off into Babylon. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. How will this happen? See, because that was the hope that had been there since the beginning, since they were given the law. The goal was bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them to Mount Sinai. I am making for myself a people. I'm setting aside you as my own treasured possession. I'm going to be your God. This is how this role is going to work. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. So now, all of that has come tumbling down. They've been taken out into captivity in Babylon. And he tells them, 
but I'm going to bring them back and make them dwell in safety, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. But if you've been paying attention since the beginning, you would probably be saying, but that was your plan originally, and it didn't work. So to do the same thing again, expecting a different result, I've been told, is the definition of insanity. I don't know if it really is. I've actually never looked up the definition of insanity. <laughs> I kind of want to. I kind of want to see if that's the actual definition. But let's uh, go on. So, what is going to be different this time? Well, he tells you in thirty-nine. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. See, this was the hope of the Mosaic covenant. When Moses actually told them, this is what's going to happen, Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you go read that later, and we're going to read a, just a snippet of it later, but if you go read that later, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses lays it all out there for them. See, this is, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. You're going to teach your kids. Your kids are going to then be my people also, and I will be their God. So now he says... I'm going to bring you back, and we're actually going to do it this time, but the way that it has to work is I've got to do an exchange. I've got to take out your heart of stone, and I've got to give you a heart of flesh, because by default, that heart of stone is going to lead you off into captivity in Babylon. But if I replace your heart and give you a new heart and that, that actually fears me and loves me and desires to obey me, then it will be for your good and the good of your children because you will desire then to teach that to your children and your children will actually desire me as well because of their new heart. I will make them an ever... Verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Who's doing all this, by the way? God's doing all this. The new heart exchange is an act God does. And he defines it as an everlasting covenant. We would call it the new covenant. How was that new covenant accomplished? Well, at the Last Supper, Jesus holds up a cup. And he says... This is the new covenant in my blood. Christ's death accomplishes the new covenant God promises. Who's doing the work of the new covenant? God through Christ. How much work are you supplying to having a new heart? None. That's the difference between all the covenants that came before, here you go, do it. And now the covenant that God does, the new covenant. He secures it. He does the heart transplant. Jesus secures it with his blood. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. With all my heart and soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be brought, bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. 
fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the Negev, the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Jeremiah's action was a testimony to the promises of Yahweh that he would make a new covenant with them. He's not done, in other words, with his people. All of Jeremiah's actions are one big picture that God is not done with you. He's not finished accomplishing his goals. So, He's not only not finished with them, he's going to make a new covenant with them, and he's going to take the initiative to create within his people a new heart, a new disposition, to love and obey him. So the land, once more, will enjoy bounty and blessing out of the depth uh, and de- uh, death and debris of the ruined city would spring new life and hope. All right, then we get to verse 4 of chapter thir- 33. So, He's, he's explained to Jeremiah, this is why I'm doing this. It's an illustration that I am not done with my people. For thus says the Lord, 33 verse 4, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. They are coming in to fight. Who is they? They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans. These are the Jews that have kind of torn down the houses to make these sort of fortresses, if you will. But they're in, the, in the end, they're going to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I will strike down in my anger and my wrath, for I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. Well, there's, there's my word, prosperity. Woo, we got prosperity. That's not exactly what he means. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, rebuild them as they were at first. What, how will he do this? Look at verse 8. How will he do it? I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. So what, what does this restoration look like? What did he to expect this restoration to look like? It's not merely an upbuilding of a city, or even the prosperity of a city. What this looks like is that this is now a place where people are gathering together in the name of the Lord, and with joy and new hearts are celebrating all that He has done with forgiveness of sin. And this city shall be to me, in verse 9, and this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. Who will be watching this? All the nations of the earth will be looking at this. And you might say Israel will again be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Yeah? All right. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, 
in the cities of Judah and of the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings into the house of the Lord. Why are they rejoicing? Why are the groom and the bride and all them, why are they rejoicing? They're, they're back in their lands, part of it. What is the other part? Pivotal part. Can they just come back in the land and begin rejoicing? They love God. They're rejoicing as they bring their thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, is what they say. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Now the fortunes of the land as at first were people that were covenanted with the Lord and loved him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste without man or beast, and in all of its cities there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks, in the cities of the hill country, the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. So there's this picture that he's giving of the land being again abundant in prosperity. All right. The present indeed was bleak beyond description, but in the day of restoration, Yahweh would bring to pass the fullness of of his redemptive saving plan for Israel and all the nations of the earth. Okay? Hang on to these. Because about, we're, about, we're about to start pulling some G's, okay? So just bear with me. Um, now, let's look closer at what this day looks like. Okay? So part of you is thinking, okay, so they're brought back into the land. Well, they're released in 537, 38... They get released back. They go back into the land. They begin building some of them. Certainly not all of them. <coughs> so, is that it? That's part of it. It's not all of it. Verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause... So it's in those days and at that time. So we're talking about the same time here. The time of mirth and gladness and joy and dancing and rejoicing. You're thinking, oh, well, they're back in the land. That's why they're rejoicing. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What does that day look like? What is that day? What's being described? What should I expect? How will I know when that day comes to fruition? I'll tell you how you'll know when that day is here, the day that I'm talking about. Not when you're making a little money and there's some jingle in your pocket. Not when even your land is worth money. You'll know that day that I'm talking about when I cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days... Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. By the way, this will dwell securely. And this be saved is seen as the same thing. And this is the name by which it will be called 
the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And, look at this, the Levitical priests, what are they doing there? The Levitical priest shall never lack a man in the presence of the burnt, of the burnt offerings to burn grain offerings and make sacrifices forever. The Levitical priests are there. Wait a minute. That's strange, isn't it? Put that in your mind. The Levitical priests are there. All right? Just hang that in your, in your mind. There's, there's a crucial piece of information that's missing, Right? This prophecy is there, and it's out there, and us in the New Testament are looking back on it and go, how could y'all not see that? And they're reading it going, all right, we're going to have some priests. Hey, all right. We're going to get the, all the priests there. All right? We're going to have a bunch of kings. We're going to have the sons of David are going to be back on the throne. We're going to have one, and he's going to die, and then we're going to have another one, and he's going to die, and then we're going to have another one. You're never going to like a man on the throne. We're going to be back to our... That's what they're thinking, right? And you're in the New Testament going, you shouldn't be thinking that. That's not what I mean. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the word of the Lord. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. In other words, if you can make the sun and moon do something different so that the day and the night will not, will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. What is he doing? He's saying, just as sure as the day and the night are, so will my covenant with David with, with, that, that I've just made will be. The word of the Lord came again to Jeremiah. Have you not, this is 23, not observed that these people are saying the Lord rejected the two clans that he chose. Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in the sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with the day and the night and fixed the order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. So he's telling them, as sure as the day and the night are, so this that I'm saying will be. All right. So out of the death and debris of the ruined city would spring new life and hope. The ancient promises of Yahweh would find fulfillment when an heir of David would sit on his throne forever. That's what he's saying. As soon as my... Heir sits, the son of David sits on the throne, then you will know these promises have come to fruition. All right? So you got the time frame already if you're just paying attention when he's talking about. So before you take a prophet and force them into this very literal box where every aspect is checked, you have to remember what are they talking about? They're talking about an heir of the son of David rising up from David's branch and sitting on the throne and ruling and executing righteousness and justice. So you have to understand now that you're on this side in the New Testament, you're looking back at that, now it helps you to understand the way Jeremiah is laying out the prophecy before the people. All right? Okay. So the promises of Jeremiah 31 to 33 amount to a fulfillment of the most essential covenants of the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. There are many other covenants, okay, in the Old Testament. There are many that we could talk about. But these three are arguably the most crucial for the biblical story, all right? All of them have their merits. We can talk about all of them. They all fit in. 
But these are absolutely the most crucial. The fulfillment of these covenants are called into question now because of Israel's captivity not being a blessing, their exclusion from the promised land, and no longer having a king on the throne. Okay, here's where we... You ready to get in the jet? Here we go. Okay, you ready for me? Can everybody see this, by the way? Even, you can kind of... Okay, all right, I'll try to write big. Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is given to a person in the Old Testament. What is his name? Oh, we're, we're, see, this is just takeoff. All right. There is a blessing promised to Abraham. What is that blessing? What is it? There's descendants. What is it? I will make of you a great nation. Anything else? I will, you will be a blessing to the nation. In fact, I will bless those. So there's bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all nations will be blessed. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise to Abraham. There is also a curse that comes with the Abrahamic covenant. The curse is basically the penalty of death. And we know that because when the covenant is ratified in Genesis 17, 15, 17, 15, 15, uh, Abraham has a vision of this covenant being ratified. And the, in, in the ratifying of the covenant, and two an, or some animals are split in half, and there's a little pathway made between the cut halves of the animals, and the person responsible for bearing the curse of the covenant walks in between those animals. And the implication then is, the one who walks through this, these split animals bears this fate. If you break it, the, just as these animals were split in half, dead, so the person who bears the brunt of the curse will be killed. Who bears the curse in the Abrahamic covenant? God does. So Yahweh himself passes between the animals. Bears the brunt of the curse. So then he calls them out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the Mosaic Covenant. Now the Mosaic Covenant is also named after a person. And who is that? No turbulence even on this ride. Look at that. It's so awesome. What is the blessing of the Mosaic Covenant? There's life. Huh? What is it? Okay, we'll come back to... They're actually, land's in actually all of them. But, but okay, okay, we'll say land. All right, we'll put land up there. Land's in all of them, but you get the idea. Life, land... What is it? What is it? Law, oh, laws. Is that what you said? Laws? Yes, that's part of how the covenant is kept. Yes, there's laws that have to be kept. There's also a relationship, isn't there? I will be your God. You will be my people. 
This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Relationship. We'll just put relationship. God is laying out the relationship. And there are stipulations for this relationship. And that is the laws that you must keep in order to keep this relationship. There is a curse that comes with the Mosaic Covenant. Who bears the brunt of the curse? What is the curse, first of all? Death, destruction, exile. Exile is the curse. And I'm just going to write that in small letters up here. Exile is the curse. And who bears responsibility? Who will bear the curse if it's broken? That would be mankind. Namely, the nation of Israel. All right? Now, we come to the Davidic covenant. All right? We're going to mark out this box because we're not really going to talk about that much tonight. The Davidic covenant comes. It's also named after a person. What's his name? See? This is not that hard. This is easy. We, what is the blessing of the Davidic covenant? What's that? Heir on the throne. Okay? David will never lack a son on the throne, which in those days is no small feat. All right. So so in these covenants, you've got um, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. And each one of those is now, by the exile of Israel, called into question. Every single one of them. Okay? Here's the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He promises I will give you a land and a blessing. And you see here uh, on this line here under fulfillment, you've got all of these passages. They all detail everything that I'm saying. Okay, so you can look that up later. We won't go into each one of them. He says, I will give you a land. I will give you this land as an eternal possession. It will be yours forever. I will give this land to you. And God bears the brunt of the curse if this is not accomplished. Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, now you have a nation going into exile. And the nation that's cursing them, hammering away at their gates, is going to be successful. What happened to the Abrahamic covenant? They're going to take our land. They're going to remove us from our land. How is that possible that you can fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and remove us from our land? It's impossible. So for the Jew reading this, they're thinking, okay, if I'm going to, if, I'm, if God is going to be faithful to the Abrahamic covenant, I got to be standing right here. I have to be here. Mosaic covenant. Is called into question now. Can I really have life and relationship? How can I possibly live up to the stipulations of the covenant if it doesn't work? I can do it all, I can try to do it all day, and I can spin my wheels and I still end up in idolatry. How is it possible for me to fulfill my end of the covenant if, I, if the heart I have is broken? It doesn't work, and I can't actually obey the laws. You see the problem here? And it's going to end in exile every time. You put me back in this land, I'm going to be back in exile again. Over and over. The Davidic covenant now is called into question. An heir on the throne? 
our king is, you're saying, about to be taken off into captivity. How can, how can you be faithful to the Davidic covenant? And by the way, God is the one that promises this. He doesn't even lay out a curse. He just says, this is going to happen. God is going to be faithful to it. So you're, how, how can I trust that you're faithful to this if, if you're taking the heir and you're taking him out into Babylon where he'll surely die? So all of these covenants come into question, and Jeremiah is the one going, yes, lay down your weapons and go. What are you talking about? This is calling into question every covenant that's here. So how is this going to happen? The promises of God in Jeremiah are assuring the people that God's faithfulness to the covenants has not failed. He will secure their blessing to the nations. Their heart will be changed so that Yahweh is their God and they are His people. And He will place David back on the throne forever. He's telling them it's through exile that all of, this, all of these covenants are going to come to fulfillment. Okay? Alright. Keep going. The fulfillment comes through a covenant enacted on better promises because of the one, the obedient Son, who actually comes in and fulfills it. So as we take a look, let's just take a look at some of these passages that are listed out here that the New Testament authors are actually beginning to pick up on, beginning with Hebrews 8, 11 to 13. Remember what I told you to keep in your head? A lot of it. Hebrews 8, 11 through... I thought I had 11 through 14, but I may have just put 11 through 13 on here. What is it? Yeah, that's what I got, 11 through 13. I think I have, a, I have 11 through 14 on my, on my sheet, but I have 11 through 13 in the passage. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord... For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What did he just quote? What did, what did the author of Hebrews just quote there? You've heard that before. He just quoted Jeremiah, right? Okay. He says... Man, I put the wrong verse. 2 Corinthians 1. Okay, yeah. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and has given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Romans, 8, Romans 15, 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. It would be these listed up here. For I, um, Romans 4, 13-14. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is, it is the adherence, it, for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Matthew 5, 5, this is Jesus speaking, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Land, forget land, earth, world. Galatians 3, 7 to 9, 
Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, hold on just a second. So in the Abrahamic covenant, God bears the curse of the covenant if it's not fulfilled. And the covenant was to bless, all, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But you understand, part of that is they're dwelling in the land forever. What guarantees that they're going to be exiled from the land forever? The Mosaic Covenant. So here, mankind bears the curse if they don't fulfill the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. They're kicked out of the land, they're put in exile, into slavery, and what that does then is call into question the promise that God gave to Abraham, where he bears the curse. So now we have a situation where, but man's bearing one curse, the Mosaic Covenant, God is bearing the force of the curse of the Abrahamic covenant in the exile of Israel or Judah into Babylon. You tracking with me? Both are compromised. The only solution is that God, both God and man bears the curse, one for the Mosaic covenant and one for the Abrahamic covenant. You understand? How is this going to be accomplished? Why? Through Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. Only someone fully God can bear the curse of the Abrahamic covenant. Only someone fully man can bear the curse of the Mosaic covenant. And in Christ, he bears both of them because he's fully God and fully man. All right? Now, in so doing, what has he done? He's also become the righteous heir of David's throne, which is why Matthew begins his gospel with a lineage that traces back through David ensuring that you understand not only is his lineage through David, but it's through the kingly line of David that Jesus comes. And because he is David's heir, he now, in the new covenant, brings all three covenants into one covenant, the new covenant, which he secures by his blood. You tracking with me? Okay. So the New Testament is going out of its way to say it's Christ that fulfills all of it. Who is Israel? There's no more Israel than Christ. He's the one. He's the one that fulfills it. Which is why the author of Abraham, I mean, author of Hebrews, then comes into Hebrews chapter 8, and I, for some reason, did not include it, and I have no idea why. Maybe it wasn't the Lord's will, but I'm going to do it anyway, even though we're pressed for time, I'm going to still read it. Maybe I can't. Hang on. There's no Hebrews 8, is there? Yeah, 14. Maybe this. No, that's not 14. I put the wrong thing. I think it meant 10. Yeah, uh, 10 verse 11, Hebrews. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Problem. So the promise in Jeremiah was, you're going to have priests again. And they're like, we're going to have priests. All right, we're going to have priests. They're going to be standing there giving their sacrifices daily. And the author of Hebrews says, that's a problem, because priests have to stand there and every day offer sacrifice. Verse 12, but when Christ 
had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what has happened in Christ is not only has he fulfilled all of those things, but the authors of the New Testament are going to great lengths to help you understand everything that was promised to you in Jeremiah, everything that was promised to you in Ezekiel, everything that was promised to you throughout all time in the Old Testament has come to fulfillment in none other than Jesus Christ. It's been accomplished. He's done it. And these priests that were promised to you is actually one high priest. He did his job, and he's not standing to do it anymore. He sat down. That means you're finished. So what does that mean, then, for all those who are included in Christ? Paul says he has made one new man. No longer is there Jew and Gentile. He's made one new man. This new covenant in his blood has dissolved those distinctions. It's one new man in Christ. It renews our affections to the one who saved us. It should resolve us to live together in love and remind one another of an eternity that awaits us. This isn't finished yet. There's still work to be done, and the work is bringing those into his fold. He's continuing to do that. The reason that our work in the church is sharing the gospel with people. It's proclaiming the name of Jesus and calling them to repentance. It's because through that, they may have forgiveness of sin. They may be included in his kingdom. That they may have eternal life. This is the work that he has left done, and he's chosen to do it through you, his representatives. No longer is it just Jeremiah, whose life is to be lived as a representation of what God will do. Now it's the people of his church. It's his people who are called by Christ's name. You are to be the representative. Your life is to demonstrate what happens next. So you get to those times where death is, seems to be knocking at your door. Or the threat of death seems to be knocking at your door. How do you, Christian, at that moment in time, tell a lost and dying world, I believe there's life to come and I don't think this is the last I don't fear death. I actually welcome it. We're all running in that direction. I'm doing it with a smile. Knowing that my destination is sure. How do you, Christian, live your life as a testimony of what God will do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for all that it says and what it means. We pray only that we can understand it, that we can wrap our head around it, that we can welcome it, that it will comfort us and warm our hearts. We pray for your spirit to work in us to do that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.